We began our series last week as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, the words of Jesus to those who gathered together on that sort of a hill, not quite a mountain, but in Kansas it would be a mountain because we don't have any mountains here. I had somebody tell me who's new to Wichita, I met him yesterday, said that he heard that this is the flattest state in the U.S. I told him he's not been to other states. But anyway... And uh, we're, we're talking about the important subject of authenticity, and we're talking about being authentic in a world that I think does not treasure, nor does it look upon those who desire to be authentic, because we live in a world that, that it is a world that really doesn't want to be authentic. It wants to be sort of camouflage. It wants to be play-acting. It wants to be pretentious. And so as a result of that, it's very difficult for us to live out the Christian life in the world that we live in. And we have been discussing that there are those who proclaim and who project a sort of righteousness that is not reality. And because of that, Jesus calls them hypocrites. And we are challenged by Jesus' words in the text today in regard to not only professing something and projecting something, but practicing what we profess. For disciples of Christ actually practice what they profess. What we claim to be, we then live out in our everyday life. We're going to talk about this important subject called connecting authentically to Christ as a disciple of Christ. And basically, we're going to be talking about prayer. But as we begin our study, I went yesterday afternoon to a dealership. Well, I'll go ahead and tell you which one it was. It was the Ford dealership in Augusta. Is Bob here today? Bob is not here today. That's a good thing because he's... You know, he's in the market of another brand of automobile, and some of you drive that brand here. Uh, anyway, I'm looking uh, at the possibility of buying a new pickup. Okay, I'm a redneck. I'm going to want to buy a pickup. I drive an SUV right now, which is not much different than that, but I'm looking at a pickup truck. I've always liked pickups ever since I was a little boy. You know, we play with pickup trucks. I've owned two of them in my life, one a large Silverado and one a very small Ford. This one is going to be one of those extended cabs, not a monster truck, but, you know, V6. I'm going to look for the gas mileage thing. Ryan Reach has one, and I have been envious of his new truck ever since he got it. And Jim Kirkpatrick came by this week to show me his. He's a show-off, by the way. And so, uh, anyway, so there's sort of a discussion about that. But anyway, yesterday afternoon, we went to the Ford dealership in Augusta, and we got into the car, uh, truck actually, and drove around. Um, you know, if you go to a couple of dealerships, you can drive several new pickup trucks. And uh, so we decided to go to Augusta because they gave us one of those keys, you know, that promised that you win something, you know, and, and all that. And I know it's a scam, but, you know, my wife is a pretty lucky person. So not that I believe in luck, but she usually wins things. So we thought maybe we could win a new truck. So anyway, we go yesterday. And, and uh, so we get to driving around. And this guy, his name is Michael, and he's brand new to Wichita. And we get to discussing about church and life and things of that nature. And I told him, I said, you know, it's interesting that the older you get, there are three things that I like to make sure that I do in life. You sleep well, you eat well, and you ride well. You know what I'm talking about? Now, if you're growing older, you know what I'm talking about. Because if you don't sleep well and eat well and ride well, you're going to be grumpy. Now, some of you, like David knew, are grumpy all the time. Love you too, David. But anyway... So uh, he was telling me he has two things in life that he wants to do all the time and make sure that he does them well. He says, I want to make sure that I sleep well and that I laugh a lot. I thought that was interesting. 
He wants to laugh a lot in life. And so I'm going to test your laughing skill today with this story. And then after we test your laughing skill with this story, then it's okay to go to sleep. But if you sleep, sleep well. If you snore, we will wake you up. But uh, anyway, so here we go. Uh, The older couple was sitting around the fireplace one evening. She turns to him and says, do you know what would taste really good before we go to bed tonight? No. What would you like, sweetheart? Her loving husband asked. Well, we don't have what I would like to have. You would have to go to the store to get it, she responded. Well, just tell me what you want, baby, and I will go get it for you, sweetheart. Sounds pretty mushy, doesn't it? Well, just tell me what you want, baby, and I'll go get it. She said, well, I think I would like to have some ice cream. What flavor, he asked. Vanilla, she responds, would be great, but you had better write that down because you know your memory is getting pretty bad these days. Ah, don't worry, sweetheart. I can remember vanilla ice cream. That's easy. Yeah, she said. Well, I think that I would also like to have a little chocolate syrup on it as well. You better get that too. Come to think of it, if you'd better write this down, sweetheart, because if you don't, you know how your memory has been lately, and you'll forget. Oh, I'm sure I can remember anything quite like that. Yeah, well, while you're at it, she said, why don't you go ahead and get us some nuts? Because, you know, after all, ice cream chocolate and nuts. We could make a sundae with that. That would be great. That's vanilla ice cream, chocolate syrup, and nuts too. I can remember that, he stated with confidence. Now, honey, you know how you are. You had better write all of that down, she said. You're getting very forgetful these days. 30 minutes later, he walks into a kitchen with a pound of bacon in a paper sack, plops it on the counter. She opens the sack, looks inside and says, I told you, you should have written it down. Where are the eggs? (laughs) Some of you don't have any humor. That's okay. What does that have to do with prayer? Here's the stretch. In all of our busy activity, we've we've grown spiritually with this symptom called amnesia, where most of us have forgotten the importance of prayer. We go about our busy lives trying to control and trying to manipulate and trying to manage life without prayer. Jesus knows that that is going to be the human tendency that his disciples are going to always struggle with. And it's for that reason in this Sermon on the Mount, as he's addressing his disciples, he says to them, guys, I want you to practice praying. I want you to pray. And he gives them basically six discoveries about prayer. And I want us to look at those six discoveries very quickly. The first discovery is found in verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. And it is here in this discovery that we learn the regularity of prayer. Prayer is to be a regular, habitual thing for the disciples. If you take a look at verse 5, it says, and when you pray. Jesus said, and when you pray. In verse 7, he says, but when you pray. And again, he says, in I mean, verse 6. And again in verse 7, he said, and when you pray. So 5, 6, and 7, all three verses, he starts out pretty much the same, and when you pray. Now notice in the text the commitment to prayer. He doesn't say, if you pray. He says, when you pray. Jesus expects his disciples to pray. It's not an option. It's not an option. 
It is something that every disciple must be disciplined in, and we must pray on a regular basis. We must be committed to pray for when you pray. Notice the you is a connection here in that Jesus is saying, you who are my disciples, those who are connected to the Father through faith in me, you who are my followers must practice prayer, must pray regularly as I do, for you are my disciples. And because I pray on a regular basis, you too should pray. For when you notice, pray. What is prayer? Prayer is a verb, and the word prayer simply means that we are to commune with God. And this communion with God, folks, is a two-way street. It's not a one-way street. Now, I know that the street right in front of us here is a one-way street, and every now and then we see some guy who's not watching or some lady, and it always blows my mind, are coming down the opposite way of the street. And I just keep waiting for somebody to have a serious accident one of these days because not all of the streets have the signs one way on them, and some people get a little bit distracted. But most of us came to church this morning on a two-way street. Prayer is a two-way street. Prayer is us communicating with God and God, in turn, communicating with us. And the reality is that most of our praying is one way, isn't it? I said most of our praying is one way, isn't it? We're communicating with God what we think we need or what we want or what we want him to do and what we believe we think should happen rather than us taking the time to listen to God and to understand what his will is before we begin to pray. Or we come to prayer with this whole attitude of, I'm going to pour my heart into God, and we don't wait or we don't receive anything from him in the course of prayer. Prayer is about a relationship with a divine being called the Father through faith in the Son. And what he wants from us is a relationship. That's why he sent his one and only Son to die on a cross, so that he could settle that relationship issue, so that through faith in Christ, we could be then reconciled with him, and we could walk in a right relationship with him. And prayer is about a verb, a verb which indicates a relationship that is ongoing, that is continual, and that we are then to relate to God and him to relate to us on this two-way street called prayer. And he says to us, he wants us to pray regularly. What is the passage in 1 Thessalonians that tells us about regular prayer? Anybody know? What was that? We have a missionary up here who knows 1 Thessalonians 5.17. He's from Brazil. Muito bem, rapaz. Pray without ceasing, Paul says. And we are to pray without ceasing. What does that mean? To be continually in a state of prayer. To pray on a regular basis about everything. But particularly to pray in that we who do not know him as we should know him, to enter into a love relationship with him where prayer is a two-way street, where he who knows everything about us, prayer enables us to get to, a little, to know a little bit more about him. So we should pray regularly. The second discovery I find in this text about prayer is the hypocrisy of prayer. It's possible for you to be a hypocrite when you pray. Jesus admonishes his disciples in this text. He said, for when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus is giving a precaution to his disciples, and he, he gives them this precaution with the words, you must not be like the hypocrites. That's the precaution. 
He knows the danger of prayer. And there's a danger in prayer in that if we're not careful, when we are praying, we could be guilty of hypocrisy. And this precaution is a warning to us that if we want to enter into an intimate love relationship through prayer, we must guard against hypocrisy, mask wearing, game playing, putting on an act, pretending to be something or someone that we're not. And you know what? That's really a futile effort when it comes to our relationship with God because God could see through the mask. He can see past the pretense. He can see beyond the games. He knows everything about you. He knows what you're thinking right at this very moment. You cannot come before God and, and put on this, this, this camouflage or this pretense or this hypocrisy like you do people in your life group or in your church or your family who can't see past that. God sees you and he knows you intimately and personally, every thought, every feeling, and every act that you commit. He is that intimate. And he gives us a warning, don't be like the hypocrites. But notice the passion of the hypocrites. It's describing the word love. The word love here is the word phileo. And the word phileo is a friendly or a friendship love. It's not an agape love, which is a God kind of love, the kind of love that God has for us and the kind of love that we're to have toward him. It's a phileo love. And I scratched my head this week as I was studying this text. And I got thinking of a phileo love. Why do these hypocrites have a phileo love, a brotherly love, a friendship love? And I wondered, maybe it's because they love to impress man more than they love to impress God. Is that possible? They love to impress man more than they love to impress God. They have no concern with impressing God. All they care about is the applause or the approval or the acceptance of their peers and the people around them. And because they love that applause and that, uh, that appeal more than they love the applause and the appeal and the acceptance from God, they chose then to impress man and they have failed to impress God. Why? Because they have the wrong passion. Anytime God takes a back seat in any endeavor of prayer, you stand guilty of hypocrisy in prayer. Not only do we see their passion and the precaution, but notice the place for the hypocrisy. The place is where? It's in the synagogue, it's on the street corners. <laughs> now, you and I would have a tendency to read this. We would expect someone to be a hypocrite in the community, right? Because after all, you know, we don't want anybody in the community or in you know, where we work or where we live or where we recreate or where our kids, you know, play the ball games. We don't want anybody to really see the hypocrisy in our lives. So we put on this facade and we put on this mask and we play these games and, and we just kind of cover up. So we would, we would understand that, that the possibility of, of projecting reality before the community, but in the church, could it be possible that we came to church this morning putting on this hypocrisy, this air, this pretense, this game playing that we do, that we've lived Monday through Saturday perfectly righteous and completely holy, and that we are as, as, as spiritual and as mature as we could ever be, that no one is as mature as me. Could we be guilty of that? And you see, in the text, we're going to learn that these people, the Jews that Jesus is addressing, the Israelites, they had a custom. They prayed at 9, at 12, and at 3 o'clock, three times a day, every day. Three times a day, 
every day the same prayer. And in the mornings and the evenings, they also then, um, they, they prayed the Shema, which is a morning and an evening prayer. And so they had virtually five prayers a day that they prayed every day, and they were always the same prayers. So no matter where you were, if you were in Jesus' day and you were a zealot and a religious enthusiast, if you were spiritually mature, if you were serious about your faith, no matter where you were at 9 o'clock in the morning, you would stand up and you would recite this prayer. You've had it memorized since you were a kid. At 12 o'clock, you would stand up. Let's say you're at the grocery store or you're at a restaurant, and at 12 o'clock, right on dot, you would stand up and you would blurt out this prayer, no matter where you are. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you would do the same. Imagine the tendency and the temptation of looking as pious as possible in the effort of pronouncing this repetitious prayer. They did it to be seen by men. That's the purpose of this prayer, he says. You have done this hypocritical act, not because it's heartfelt, not because your mind is engaged in what you're saying, but you are repeating this prayer simply to be admired by others so they will see your good deeds and count you as righteous, as faithful. And so they did that. That's the purpose for doing it. And so what's the payoff for what they did? Well, they'll receive a reward. What is the reward? Well, the reward that they have received has been built upon what others have perceived. It's been based upon a reality that's been projected that is nothing but hypocrisy. And as they see this hypocritical act, these people have built in their minds, look at him, look at her, how pious, how religious, how spiritual, how mature, how dedicated they are. Wow! And Jesus says, in that prayer you've just prayed, That's all you get. You don't get any more, is the applause of men. And Jesus warns us against the hypocrisy of prayer. But he also gives us this aspect about prayer that is to be a private moment. There's a a private matter about prayer that Jesus describes in the next verse. He said, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. He gives them here a prescription. He's saying prayer should be private. When you offer your prayer, I want you to offer your prayer with absolutely no distractions. Is that easy today? I saw a guy coming to church today. Well, not this church, but he was driving today as I was coming to church. And we were driving on the interstate 62 or 63 miles an hour, and he's texting. Is that insanity? I would tell him, ain't nobody got time for that. Because you're about to live a short life, dude. I just hope you don't hit me in the process. We live in a a world that is so fast-paced and is, is filled with so many distractions. I don't understand how we even have an opportunity to offer to him, the Father, God, sitting on his throne, a prayer, a thought, a heartfelt passion that is completely void of all of the distractions of the world. And he says, when you offer a prayer to me, I want it to be without distractions. That's what he's saying in this text. And the world that we live in is filled with more distractions than the time in which Jesus is speaking these words. What that means is turn off the stinking TV. 
turn off iTunes, turn off Pandora, turn off whatever it is that you've got going on. And place yourself in a, in, a, in a position in your home. He says there, in a quiet place, shutting the door. What's the object? Because in that place where, it, where there's, there's a void of distractions, the object of your prayer life is to be focused solely upon God. The prayer is to be focused completely on God, not on your need and not on anyone else, but solely on God. He is the object of your prayer, your focus, your attention, your delivery, and your prayer. And he and he alone is the one to whom you are to focus and to concentrate on. He says, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to who? Your Father. It is a communion, a communication between you and the Father, and he doesn't want any distortions, any distractions, any interruptions, any other noises coming into your mind in your sight, in your ears, or from your heart. He wants complete and total attention. Ladies, do you know what I'm talking about? I ask you again, ladies, do you know what I'm talking about? How often do you get that from your man? Marriage counseling right here at, at the end of the service. I'm just kidding. Especially have you, you have a I don't have an attention deficit, but I've, I've told you many times I have multiple thoughts in my head at the same time. This is hard for me, but it's hard for all of us to give God our undivided attention and to focus solely upon him and to focus our attention upon him and him alone, not on our needs or not in others. But notice he says in the objective of prayer is in the secret place. It's not describing God as a God who is unseen, but in prayer, he wants to connect with us in the unseen places, in the private places. There was a teacher who was talking to me not long ago about a student who said, there was a conversation going on, and a, a little student said, did you know that you can pray in your head? A student at school, telling his teacher, he discovered that he could pray in his head. Can you pray in your head? Do you actually have to mouth words? Where is the secret place? It's in your heart, and it's in your mind. It's in your focus. It's in your attention. You can go to the secret place without ever uttering a word to the Father. For he enters in that very place, that very throne room of God with us, in the secret place, the heart-to-heart the mind-to-mind, the will-to-will, the purpose-to-purpose, to the secret place. That, he says to us, is where the privacy of prayer is interjected in this wonderful discovery about prayer. We can go anywhere at any time to any place. We may not utter a word, and no one may know what we're doing, but we can be in a state, an attitude, or an action of prayer without ever saying a word. And how beautiful is that? The fourth discovery is the intimacy of prayer. The intimacy of prayer is seen in the second part of verse 6. For prayer is an opportunity for us, as I said earlier, to build our relationship with him, not him to build his relationship with us. Did you know that? God doesn't need to build a relationship with us because he already knows everything about us. 
I mean, he formed you in your mother's womb. He shaped you while you were in the womb. He birthed you and he gave you life and he breathed life. He's been sustaining your life and everything about you. He knows intimately, personally, everything about you. So he doesn't really need to get you to know you better. Prayer helps us to get to know him better. And here we see this intimacy of prayer about how and what we can learn about God. It says in the verse, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. I find as I look at that text that God is a personal God. Where do you find that? He's your father. He's your father. That gets pretty personal, isn't it? He's your father. That means there's a relationship between father and kingdom kid, between us and God. And because he is our father and we are his kingdom kids, that intimate love relationship, he cares about us, he loves us, and he provides for our needs because that's what fathers do. They love their children, they care for their children, and they provide their needs, don't they? And he says to us, I am that kind of personal God with you. You are my child, and I am your father. And in that relationship of intimacy, I want you to know that I am ever present with you. He says, and your father who sees in secret. He's not reminding us about the inaccessibility or the distance between us and God, but Jesus is reminding us about the ever-presence of Christ himself and that he is with you when you pray. He's there. When you pray, he is there. You have his full attention. He is not distracted. He is not distanced. He is not distanced distant from you. There's this aspect of a personal God who is ever present with me and who is all powerful to provide what I need. Notice he he will reward you. He not only promises that he will reward you, but he is a God who is powerful enough to reward you. He has the ability to fulfill his promise. And he says, I will reward you if you pray correctly and take the time to relate to me rightly. I will reward you. I have the power to do that. I asked somebody the other day, they were running through the hall, and I said, you know, they were running, they were being a little rowdy. I looked at them and said, "Uh, young man, where is your daddy? And he looked at me and he ran. (laughs) Um, Who is your daddy? Who is your father? Who is your heavenly father? And that relationship that we have with our heavenly father is an intimate love relationship. Through faith in Christ, our relationship has been reconciled, and now we have the boldness to enter into the very throne room of God, the very throne room of God, each and every time when we pray. And he is a personal God. He is our Father through faith in his Son, and he is ever-present with us as we pray. And in that prayer life, he is more than powerful and more than sufficient to do whatever is necessary and whatever is needed. For that's what fathers do. The fifth aspect about the discovery of prayer is the sincerity of prayer. Prayer is to be very sincere, I see in this text. Notice what it says in verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. 
Sincerity means authenticity. It means to be genuine. It means to be real. And here we see in Jesus' words himself, he says there's a practice that is being done by the religious. Who are the religious? The religious are those who profess something and practice wrongly. They do not practice what they profess. They do not, they're not real. They're, they're play acting. They are the religious. They're doing it out of habit, out of tradition, out of appearance, for the wrong motives, and they are not anything but just religionists. They're nothing different than the heathen, basically. And he compares these religious in Israel, these practicing religionists, equal to those of the Gentiles. They're, they're like heathen. They're like the pagan. They're doing the same things. Well, he says in the text, and when you pray, do not heap empty phrases as the Gentiles do. What are they practicing? They're just reciting these prayers over and over and over again. At 9, at 12, at 3, they're just saying the same thing. There's no heartfelt passion about it. There's no mind engaging in what they're praying. There's no sincerity. there's, There's no authenticity. They're just saying words. And that's all they are to him, is their words. They're nothing more than just babblings, just empty words that are being offered to God, and and they don't go anywhere. You ever had anybody in a conversation, you've sat across from them, and all of a sudden you find yourself, you see the mouth moving, but you have no clue what they have just said. Anybody guilty of that other than me? Don't raise your hand, guys. Your wife might elbow you. That, that, it's not because he's distracted that God's not hearing. He's listening and they're babbling down here. He said, forget it, man. I, I don't hear you. But notice the purpose of this constant babbling. For they think that they will be heard for their empty words. The Gentiles, the heathens, believed that they could eventually wear God down or their gods down by constantly repeating the prayer. If I could just hound God enough, if I could just gripe enough, if I could just complain enough, if I could just, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't find, seem to find it in my head. The, the nagging, that's the word. If I could just nag God more, then God's finally going to relent and give me what I want. What about that parable where that lady came in the middle of the night, Jesus talked about prayer, and she beat on the door, and the guy wouldn't come, and she kept beating on the door, and the guy wouldn't come, and she beat on the door, and finally he got up because he was tired of her beating, and he said, what do you want? She said, well, I got some guests. I don't have anything to feed them. Will you give me what I need? And the guy came down, and he gave her what she need. What about that? You just keep pounding and pounding and pounding until you break God down and he finally gives in to what you want. Is that how you get things with God? You can try it if you want. You're going to be a frustrated prayer person. While Jesus talks about the persistence of prayer in that parable, he's not saying that we can wear God down. You can't wear God down. Because if you could wear God down, you have already done so because of your humanity and your sinfulness. But because of his mercy and grace is everlasting, we can't exhaust God. You can't tire him out. You can't keep beating on the door until he finally says, you know what? I'm tired of you begging me here. It doesn't work that way. 
Let me ask you something. When you're in the grocery store, ladies or dads, and you got the, the, the cart there, and they put those candies right there, you know what I'm talking about? That's intentional, right? And the kid's screaming because they want candy. Do you give in to them? Some of you get tired of them nagging, and you finally give in to them, but some of you do not. And we're taught that we can bug and hound and gripe and complain and nag until we finally break God. And you're not going to break God. It's not going to happen. That's what Gentiles do. That's how the heathen think. That's unspiritual. That is not indicative of a disciple of Jesus. That's not how we pray. Yes, we are persistent in our prayer until God says yes, no, or wait. And when God says no, don't keep beating down the door. If he says wait, then wait. But you're not going to wear him down. And so we move on then to the final discovery, I think, in this text, is the sovereignty of prayer. Yes, the sovereignty of prayer. Why the sovereignty? Because God who reigns and rules on his throne is a sovereign God. And if you notice in verse 8, it says, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. The sovereignty of God is seen in verse 8 in the direction of God. Do not be like them. Where do we learn how to pray? Usually from our parents. Really, we should learn to pray from God himself. Because God is giving us the direction of our prayer life. He's saying, this is how I want you to pray. Next week, we're going to go to the words of Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, where he says, this is how I want you to pray. And we should pray like Jesus taught us to pray. But most of our praying is not that way. God's saying, I am sovereign, and I am going to give you the direction you need in order to pray, and this is the way I want you to pray. Now, he's not reciting a prayer next week, and we're going to see this prayer, where we're to recite this prayer like they did at 9 and 12 and 3 and in the morning and the evening. That's not what the Lord's Prayer is about. It gives us some aspects and some direction about how we are to pray. And we are to pray as God teaches us and leads us to pray in his word. And he gives us some very specifics about how we should pray. And we cannot pray correctly unless we know what the directives of God, what what they are about prayer. He's sovereign. He gets to direct us. Well, I want to pray the way I want to pray. Good luck. You're going to need it. And you're going to be a frustrated prayer person. And probably most of, the, most of us, if we persist to pray the way we want to pray, we're going to give up praying altogether. Which I'm convinced probably about 90% of us already have. And the only time we pray is when there's a crisis. Or we need something real bad. Or we're in a jam. Or somebody's been hurt and we need God to come through. And all of a sudden it's amazing how, how quickly we become very spiritual and start to pray. Because there's a need rather than a relationship. There's a direction here. Notice in his sovereignty, we see the devotion of a sovereign God. It says here that he, notice it says, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask. He's so devoted to you. He cares so much about you that he knows what you need even before you ask it. He's not clueless. He's not inactive. He's present in the reality of the now. 
knowing every thought, every emotion, every action that you have, everything about your life, he already knows what you need before you ask him. Ladies, wouldn't you like to have a husband like that? I said, ladies, wouldn't you like to have a husband like that? My wife has one. I anticipate her needs before she knows what it is, and I'm there to give it right when she needs it. And she goes, oh, thank you, God, for a great husband. Right, babe? (laughs) God's like that, though. He knows what you need before you even ask him. It says right here, he's that devoted to you. But did you notice the word need? Don't, Don't miss that. Notice the sovereignty of God in the distribution of his power and his provision. He gives you only what you have need of. Not what you want, not what you would like, but what you need. Who gets to tell you what you need? God does. Let me say that again. Who gets to determine what you need? God does. Paul had a need. He had a thorn in the side, and he prayed three times, and three times he prayed, and God said no. And what happened? He gave him the grace that was more than sufficient to meet the need. He didn't take away the thorn. He gave him something else. He gave him grace. Should Paul have continued to persist to pray that God remove the thorn? That would have been disobedience. Because God supplied his need, not his want. And many of us are praying for our wants, our likes, our dislikes, our what we think should happen, rather than coming to God as Jesus did in John 5, who walked around seeing what God was doing and simply joined God in what he was doing. You see, there's, there's this whole concept about prayer. There are two extremes about praying. Okay, two extremes. The one extreme is God's already predetermined what he's going to do, so therefore I don't have to pray. What's the use? God's sovereign. He's in control. I don't really need to pray because God's will is going to be done anyway, no matter what. And and I don't agree with that because I'm a sovereignist. But the other side of that is you have some who say, you know what? My need and my petitioning, without it, God would never do anything. And I would also agree that Scripture teaches that because Scripture says you have not because you ask not. So Scripture does say you have not because you ask not, so therefore our praying precipitates God doing something in his provision. So what is it? It's both. And put that in your hat and try to think about it for a while. You just can't figure God out, people. You just can't. You might think you want to put him in a little box, but you can't. He tells us here that we are to pray. And if God has already predetermined what he's going to do, then why did he ask us to pray? Because he wants us to join him in the activity of what he wants to do through us. And I think praying is more about us joining God rather than God joining us. And, and, and by this beautiful design that God has, he incorporates us as a part of the plan and the provision that he wants to yield in the harvest that he is developing around us. And it's all about his kingdom. It's not about me. It's not about you. But it's about him, his glory, and his kingdom. And God is doing everything to further his kingdom. Not mine, not yours, not Emmanuel's, his. For he says, thy kingdom come. 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the beautiful aspect about this is notice his desire. He knows it even before you ask him. He wants us to pray. He wants us to ask him. He wants us to come to him and pray. He does. And he invites us into the very throne room of God to pray. But when we pray, we need to be really careful how we pray. In Matthew chapter 20, I think it begins in verse 20, there's a lady, a mother who comes to Jesus and he bows down before Christ as if she's going to ask him something. And Jesus says, what would you want? What can I do for you? This lady had the audacity to ask Jesus, I want one son to sit on your right and the other to sit on your left. I think sometimes our prayers are so selfish, they're so self-centered, they are so carnal, they're so egotistical that we are not joining God in what God wants to do through us. We're inviting him to join us rather than us to join him. Do not be like them, he says, for your father knows already what you have need before you even ask him. Six disciplines, real quick, as we close. I'm going to run through these real quick. In the back of your outline, there's, all you have is the, that, the only blank. Did you like the fact that I gave you the blanks earlier? Yes? Okay. It's easier to keep up with me, isn't it? Prayer. Six disciplines in prayer. I'm going to run through these very quickly. P stands for practice. As a disciple of Christ, we need to practice to pray regularly. I invite you to pray on a regular basis. On a regular basis. Pray without ceasing. Paul admonishes us. Practice the regularity of prayer. I know sometimes you think you don't have time. But you need to pray. We must be a praying people. The R stands for resist. We must resist Every temptation for hypocrisy in our prayer life. I guarantee you, you, if you're not careful, you will yield to the flesh and you will pray hypocritically. It happens. You're a fallen human being. Saved by grace through faith, it is true. Positioned in the righteousness of Christ, that's reality. But you still struggle for the things you want to do, you don't do, and the very things you don't want to do, you wind up doing, woe is me, right? So you're going to battle hypocrisy in prayer in your prayer life your whole life. But we must continue to resist it. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. He doesn't say don't pray in public, but make sure when you pray in public, you're focused on him, not on them. The A stands for appreciate, the privacy of prayer. Find a place somewhere in your home where you can spend some quiet time alone with God. I know where Patty's going to be every morning in the same spot in our house. I'm going to be in my basement, and she's going to be in that, I call it her perch, her place. And I can hear her scurrying around in the morning, and I bring her coffee, and she has coffee and Jesus every morning in the same spot. She's done that as long as I can remember, and she probably is not liking the fact that I've mentioned this already to you. But Can I have lunch invitation, anyone? <laughs> the Y stands for yearn 
to be intimate with God. You need a desire to be intimate. We need to yearn for intimacy. My soul hungers and yearns and thrives and thirsts for God. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons why we are not praying is because we don't have a hunger or a thirst or a desire or a craving to be with him. For when I'm not with him on a regular, habitual basis, I know, I know I'm in trouble. And there's something missing in my step. The E stands for express sincerity in prayer. Be sincere. Don't just start babbling off a bunch of stuff. But engage your mind and your heart and express sincere, heartfelt emotions. Let me tell you something. God can handle your emotions. He can handle your thoughts. He can handle your prayer. There's nothing that's off limits. There's nothing that's, that's, that's unsacred. But just, just be sincere. And if you don't know how to pray, just say, Lord, I don't know how to pray. Teach me to pray. That's what his disciples did. And the R stands for relying upon the sovereignty of God in prayer. Rely on his sovereignty because there are going to be times like Jesus when he was praying in the garden just before his crucifixion. He knew what was coming. And he prayed, God, (laughs) let this cup pass. Let it pass. It wasn't God's will, was it? And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? And what did he finally do? Father, not my will, but your will be done. Praying is seeking the Father's will and praying the Father's will and joining God in the activity that he wants to do in and through you. So let me ask you, how's your prayer life? There was a funeral here Thursday. I believe it was Thursday, one day this week, and there was a man down in the Christian Life Center down here in the gym area, and he had an earpiece on, and he had a cell phone up like this trying to find a signal. And he finally found one, and he stood there, and he was talking to somebody while he held his hand up. Why? Because unless he did that, he wasn't connecting. Are you connecting with God in prayer? Are you authentically connecting as a disciple of Christ? When you pray, are you praying? Let's pray. Your